Marian Tupi and Gail Pooley in their recent work, Superabundance, the story of population, growth, uh, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. That's all one title. Uh, they show that since 1850, global poverty has been cut by 50%. Think about that, global poverty by 50%. And they argued that instead of a world on the verge of starvation and scarcity, not that famines or poverty aren't still a thing, but with a massive growth and population over the last two centuries combined with technical innovation, it will it seem not, not an apocalypse of dwindling resources like we often hear about in the news, but rather a global explosion of wealth. And it's not just among a few or the elites, but across the world. So whereas the typical person in the mid-1800s had to work several hours in order to buy a candle, now we have nonstop light sources that are exponentially less expensive and last far longer. In turn, things like cheap, long-lasting light bulbs and cheap electricity enable greater productivity in wealth creation, so much so that we hardly think about such things. We have so much artificial light that most Americans suffer from a lack of vitamin D because we aren't in natural light very often and don't want to be. So whereas Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount addressed the very real and I think justified anxieties of his Jewish audience over whether they would have enough food, clothing, or shelter, we have a different set of problems. And it's not to say that scarcity is not an issue for some. Clearly it is, and I've dealt with it in my adult life too. But for people in our circles, the issue is not, for example, having too little calories. It's having too many. And even then, they are cheap. But we need to be careful in reducing the problem here to materialism, as if owning things or even nice or expensive things is by definition wrong. It's not. You won't find that in Scripture anywhere. All of us own and enjoy wonderful things that Paul, for example, could not have imagined, even the poorest among us. And in many respects, we are wealthier, or at the very least, far more comfortable than any Pharaoh or Caesar. Now, to be sure, the, the accumulation of, of wealth for the sake of wealth, as if money or possessions are the purpose of life or the measure of the good life, is a real problem. It is a real problem, but that's not what we are addressing today. No, the issue is what we think our possessions do for us and how we build our identities around them. Well, to that end, I think one of the most interesting answers to the problem is found in all places, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Paul's instructions to that church with the Lord's Supper. So we're going to pick it up with uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians with verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. 
One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and for this time together to meditate and think through what it is to be the body of Christ in union with you, not just as individuals, but together as one people in community, because this is where we are built. This is where you have set apart for us to grow in you. So Lord, we pray for this time. We pray for this word. We pray for everything we will do from here on out, that it be glorifying to you and good for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have nice stuff or a lot of money, whatever that means to you, and it's different for everyone, then you, by implication, have value and worth. That is what stands behind the phrase, the clothes make the man. And the lie is that we're looking at is, I am this thing, And this thing is me. It's why people think, if only I had this thing, just fill in the blank, if only I had this thing, then my life would be complete. Or similarly, because I have this thing, I I have more worth than you. I'm a better person than you. It's why it's it's very easy to take pride in what you own or, or conversely to take pride in the fact that you don't own something. So it's both snobbery and a kind of snobbery against the snobs. And both are versions of self-righteousness based on possession and its legalism. It's why it's common for people to put their favorite brands on the back of their vehicles or wear t-shirts of their favorite brands. And we do it not just because we like them, but because we think those brands give us meaning and value. So I identify with Yeti coolers or Matthew's Bows, or Vineyard Vines, or Salt Life, or 30A. And we are advertising our identities through our advertisement of our favorite brands. And of course, no one ever advertises a a cheap brand, unless they're being ironic, and especially on their car. So you don't see 
igloo or Haynes or I-65, right? The negative version of this is that if we think our stuff isn't very good, then we assume our value as people is not very good. And again, I am this thing, and this thing is me. Henry Nouwen points out that that greed and lust spring from this lie because if you are what you own, then what you own will never give you the value you hope it will. In fact, the moment you have whatever that thing is, the law of diminishing returns instantly kicks in. Now, to apply this to a different kind of relationship, it's why men can simultaneously claim to love their wives and mean it and actively lust after other women. It's not that they don't love their wives, it's that their wives are not enough. They haven't given them the value they thought they would, and so they go looking elsewhere. That's how greed and lust work. It's a contentment problem. It's looking for value and meaning in all the wrong places. And of course, this lie is not isolated to material possessions or spouses. And you know, for good reason, the Ten Commandment addresses both material possessions and spouses. No, it extends to things like your body or your talents, you know, because someone has a beautiful face or a six-pack or maybe a good brain or musical giftedness, you know, some unique quality about her, then she matters, maybe more so than the other women. It's why we not only value pretty people or rich people or talented people more highly than so-called ordinary people, you know, the rest of us, Those same people often believe the lie about themselves. And in turn, we who are not so valued highly hate the so-called pretty people, and we love to hate them. Before moving to Greenville in 2013, I had lived the previous 15 years in St. Louis, and before that, I had grown up in Chattanooga until I was about 25. And in St. Louis, in circles like ours, The mark of the fashionable mom was a minivan, in particular, Honda Odysseys. That was the mark. And among men, it tended to be mid-sized SUVs or sedans. Guess what we owned? A Honda Odyssey and a Honda CRV, and we fit right in. When we moved to Greenville, we noticed the difference. Once I traded in my my CRV for a uh, blackout edition, Chevy Silverado, things changed, and I officially became a man. So I've been told, and I was 44 when that happened. I count that as being a late bloomer, I I guess. And of course, all of this is just good-natured joking, right? And if you can't make fun of your pastor, y'all, you probably need to get another pastor, right? Even so, I had a nagging feeling while driving that CRV here that I, that I didn't have in St. Louis. In St. Louis, there was a certain sense of pride that I didn't have here. Now, did that truck really make me a man? Did it fundamentally change things about me? Now, it made it easier to fit in in certain contexts, but did it make me a man? Well, to put it another way, does putting on a cowboy hat make me a cowboy? 
Well, of course not. It's, it's like what Howard Meadows so poignantly said to me when I was discussing these things with him a few, few weeks ago. He said, you know, growing up, we'd say a man who thinks like that has a big hat and no cattle. A big hat and no cattle. Maybe that was me. You know, it's easy, if not comical, to observe this in other people. It's easy, if not comical, to observe, for example, teenaged young men with their flat bill hats poised on the top of their heads in a style that is reminiscent of old men from generations ago, driving in their jacked up lift kits, oversized tires with large gauge mufflers. It's a uniform who are thoroughly convinced. They are thoroughly convinced of their manhood because I am what I own. And I get it, my truck was awesome. It was awesome. I was 44, and there was times where I believed, I am my truck, and my truck is me. And yet, we all know better. They're just vehicles, or clothes, or a house. And if those things are the measure of our worth, if our identity is found in a Yeti cooler, or an expensive highway near Seaside, or a hat, we aren't worth much at all. And put like that, it seems ridiculous that anyone would ever believe this lie, and yet we all know that a hat is never really just a hat. And while clothes do not make the man, they do say something about him, and that's unavoidable. So even when we know the truth and can have a good laugh about the ridiculousness of it all, still, the pull of material possessions in defining us is intoxicating. It's intoxicating. Why is that? I don't know that there's a single or, or simple answer to that question, certainly not in one sermon, but I can think of at least two reasons why this lie is so powerful. Our possessions are markers of status in social class, and maybe more so our status within our social classes. And the reality is there's no such thing as not belonging to a social class and not having some measure of status, either a little bit or a lot or somewhere in between. That's why the first question we ask people is not the one we don't say out loud. It's the assessment we make based on a person's appearance or their race or their accent or their hygiene or their health. It's the second question that helps give clarity to those unspoken assessments. What do you do for a living? How is it you're affording all this? And we'll look at that question next week. Clothing, for example, is just one of the unavoidable ways of identifying status and class. And even when you are self-consciously trying not to be status or class conscious, when you are trying to go against your class and status, maybe you decided after hearing the sermon you were going to quit wearing you know, whatever brands you like, or you're gonna try and purposely dress down. I hate to tell you this, but you are still doing these things with your class and your status in mind. Some psychologists say as much as 80% of our identity is shaped in community. That is, we get a sense of who we are from the people around us. You know, after all, those boys in flat bill hats and jacked up trucks didn't come up with their fashion all on their own. No one told me directly 
that I didn't quite fit in with that car. That means there's no such thing as the rugged individualist or the libertarian who thinks, himself, thinks for himself and, and stands apart from the crowd as his own man. So when a car company or a clothing brand advertises their product for the person who thinks outside the box, the one who isn't part of the herd, they are appealing, and they know, they are appealing to someone who is part of a herd that is convinced he's not part of a herd. No, our conception of self is shaped by the people around us, and all of us in turn want to fit in. And that's normal. That's normal and an essential part of being a human. We were made to be in community. It's why God always saves a people together and why church is fundamental to your life with God. That's why things like what we're doing now and church picnics, they matter. They matter. Even so, the desire to fit in can easily run amok. It's interesting that the turn of the century movies like American Psycho and Fight Club, and I, I am not endorsing those movies. Both movies have this, this issue as a central theme. In one movie, the central character, despite working on Wall Street and having attended Harvard and Harvard Business School, is desperate. He is desperate to measure up to his colleagues and peers. And so every suit, every stitch of clothing, every business card, Every restaurant reservation is painstakingly analyzed and anxiously cultivated because, as he says, he just wants to fit in. And he will do or buy whatever it takes to do it. It's why he's a psycho. In the other movie, the central character agonizes over whether his new Ikea couch expresses who he really is. And when his apartment is blown up in the middle of the night, he mourns over his wardrobe that was becoming very respectable. You know, the biggest reason I wanted my truck was not utilitarian. I don't own hunting property. I don't tow things. I don't have need to haul stuff except occasionally pine straw. It's because I wanted to fit in. It's because I wanted to fit in. I grew up in hipster granola, Tennessee. So, you know, it's not hunting, it's, it's kayaking and rock climbing and, and backpacking. And then I lived in the urban Midwest, and in many ways I was a fish out of water and was desperate for friendship. And that truck, so I thought, helped me fit in. And it, you know what, in some measure it did. But in reality, as you all know, nobody cares. Nobody cares. It did not bring me the value I thought it was. But as debilitating and empty as wanting to fit in can become, the darker side of this lie, I am what I own, is that we use possessions as ways to keep people out or to judge them or to assign value to them. I would go so far as to say that without union with Christ, it is impossible not to do this. And this takes us to 1 Corinthians 11. If you walk through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and I'm not going to do that today, but if you were just to start walking through it, he begins by telling them who they are. That's how he starts his letter, and it's, this is chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase, in Christ Jesus. 
that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you as a people, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, at his second coming, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, judgment day. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's how he starts, and the rest of the letter explains what that means and why they're denying it. So Paul will build and explain on this throughout the letter, but the essence of it is, is basically this. It's just as true for them as it is for you. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. That's how you are fundamentally defined by God himself, and because of that, you have life, and you have every good thing from God. You are all equals, and you are all called to this life together as one people. And from the very next verse in chapter 1 till really chapter 12, Paul shows how the Corinthians had denied this, had denied their union with Christ in numerous ways, whether by political factions within the church or rampant sexual immorality or lawsuits against each other or continuing to participate in pagan sacrifices outside of church because they didn't think those things were any big deal since they knew they were idols. Now, all of those things are bad, but chapter 11 and the divisions that happened during the Lord's Supper were particularly bad and were causing some of them to be sick and even to die. And Paul tells them in chapter 11, verse 20, that when they come together, it's not the Lord's Supper they are celebrating, even though they think that's what they are doing. The reason is because divisions based on social class and status, not Christ himself, have become the defining feature of the Lord's Supper. So we, we have the benefit of, of growing up and living in a culture that, at the very least, gives lip service to the belief that all people are created equal. Thank you, Christianity. The Corinthians did not enjoy such a culture, and class and social ranking were hard and fast and were on display everywhere, and in turn, they were rigorously enforced. You know, churches in the first century brought together people from all walks of life, from wealthy elites, think about this, from wealthy elites to their slaves and everyone in between. So the book of Philemon, for example, is a radical book because it addresses the issue of reconciliation between a runaway slave, which, by the way, crucifixion might have been the appropriate punishment in the Roman world for that, and his master. And both the runaway slave and the master were Christians. And both of them were friends with Paul, who was a Jew. It's a radical book. Here's another example. Wealthy and elite women, and this, you can see this kind of across the board in Greek society, wealthy and elite women were often marked off by long hair that was covered. It was a mark of their goodness and status. Prostitutes were forced to shave their heads or keep it short and in turn keep their heads uncovered as a mark of their shame and status. And again, these markers of class and status were rigorously enforced, no less by women themselves, by women themselves. This is part of the reason why I think Paul insists that all women cover their heads in public worship. Because in Christ, both slaves and their masters, 
both elites and prostitutes are equals. They're equals. So Paul's command was not oppressive, as so many modern people think it was. No, it was intended to humble elites and elevate the lower classes. It was a critique of ancient social and class status, and it was accomplished through clothing. Clothing. Even the architecture and furniture of wealthy homes, like the sort of home that would have hosted the church in Corinth, because remember, they all got to fit somewhere. They didn't have their own space. They're in someone's home. Those kind of homes were designed with specific spaces for upper classes to congregate and other spaces for lower classes to congregate in the same home, and they did not come together on purpose. And as many scholars think in the Corinthian church, the upper classes would take positions of honor at the great table in the triclinium, and the lower classes would stand at a distance in the atrium. So get the image. Grand table, people seated at a feast, lower class standing at a distance watching. This is not unlike how some churches in our own country were designed for spaces for blacks and slaves and spaces for their owners. You can still see evidence of that in certain places. If the Corinthian church was following typical social practices of their time, which Paul seems to think they were, then those at the great table were honored above other Christians and got more and better food than those in the atrium, even to the point of drunkenness and some going hungry. So you see the, the distinction? Some are way feasting and some are getting nothing. And it's the Lord's Supper. So the elites appeared to enjoy Christ's favor simply by virtue of being elite. And they in turn reinforced their belief in their superiority by bringing a sinful worldly distinction to the Lord's table. And central to the Lord's Supper is the crucified Christ, which proclaims that all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are dead in their sin and in need of atonement. Paul leads with that in the passage. The cross of Christ is an indictment on every single human. No exceptions. The action of eating and drinking the bread and wine in turn communicates the spiritual reality that everyone who belongs to Christ is an equal at his table regardless of class or status in the world because they all partake in one Lord Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek male nor female, master or slave, good woman or prostitute. There is only one body in Christ. This is what Paul says the Corinthians have missed, or probably more so denied. This is what they have failed to discern. It's not merely that they, they need to cognitively understand that the bread and wine represent Christ's body and blood. I mean, there's that, but no, it's the real-world spiritual implications of that meal that they had denied. All of them together really and truly belong to Christ by virtue of his atoning death and their union with him. And they had continued. They had continued in, a, in an identity given to them by the world, or should I say, they had given into the temptation to go back to their previous identity in the world instead of embracing what God had given them in Christ. In turn, they had allowed themselves to believe the lie that their wealth or their status or their possessions are what truly give them meaning or value or define them. 
And the terrifying thing is, like us, it felt completely natural for them to do this. Everything in their life, everything in their world reinforced this. The Lord's Supper was radically different from their experience of everyday life. And they didn't realize as they were going back to those old patterns of identity in life, they didn't realize that they had actually rejected Jesus at his own table. Now, what's interesting to me is that Paul, and we could spend a whole lot more time on this passage, but what's interesting to me is that Paul never tells the elites to give up being elites or Jews to quit being Jewish, or the people need to get rid of their possessions. In fact, this is one of the critiques against Paul by modern scholars, that he did not hammer slavery harder than he did. But I think they miss his point. Paul knows that utopia in this life is a myth. It's a myth, and that social status and possessions can't help but define us. It's why in the new heavens and new earth, we will be clothed by God in Christ, everyone. What is a hidden reality now, this is true now, will be a visible reality for his people then. So the solution to the lie, I am what I own, is not getting rid of your stuff or choosing all the cheapest things or a vow of poverty or trying to pretend like you don't belong to a class or have status. No, I think more often than not, that, that's just false humility. And it's a knee-jerk reaction. After all, God promised Israel a veritable garden of Eden flowing with milk and honey in the promised land. God is not against you owning nice things. No, he loves to give them. It's okay if you like your things. I love many of my possessions, and I don't think that's sinful. I own... Yeti cups. I brought one into the pulpit with me. I own a Matthews bow. I go to 30A every year, sometimes multiple times a year, and I chose those things, or I choose them because I like them. But in each case, there is still the danger that I will believe I am what I own, especially when I compare things against someone else's. And the reality is, you're not always doing it. There's some, con some context where it never comes up. You don't care. And then there are other ones where you absolutely do. Now, to be sure, we may need to cut loose of some of our possessions and come to grips with our lack of impulse control and buying things. Yeah. I mean, let's be frank. Amazon is set up to be a dopamine hit of joy, and the arrival of goods at our doorstep, complete with the unboxing of them, feels like Christmas. That's on purpose. For good reason, Amazon's logo is a smile. Now, the solution to the lie, I am what I own, is I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And in every division or rivalry they faced, whether political or legal or social or immoral, Paul points the Corinthians back to who God says they are so that they will rethink all of their relationships, including their relationships with their possessions. So the owner of the house who hosted the church, most likely did not sell his home, and Paul didn't ask him to, because most homes big enough to host a church in Corinth would have been designed with similar spaces based on class. The host was already being hospitable. He already had a mixed group of people in his home, but he needed to go a step further. 
Don't allow the house itself to dictate the value of the people congregating in it. Allow Christ and the Lord's Supper to do that. That was radical then, and it's radical now. You see, Christ enables us to see past the labels, past who can sit at what tables, past the politics, and past what a person is wearing and what they do for a living. And of course, it's wise to recognize that owning nice things is dangerous. It is dangerous because, as Proverbs 30 puts it, wealth always tempts us into forgetting the God who gave it to us. And that is a real threat for all of us. But here's the rub. Some of our possessions have more of a pull on us than others, and at different times and in different situations. So, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Maybe you're like me. Paper towels do not pose a threat to me. But my shoes do. My stove is merely a tool for cooking. Don't care as long as it works. But for some people, a stove is the mark of sophistication. So like what Paul teaches at the end of Romans 7, in this life, the spirit is perpetually at war against the flesh. And what is a seductive lie to one person will not be for someone else. And that battle will not end until we die. So who will save you from this lie? Who will convince you that you are not your own? Will it happen because you sold off all your stuff? Or refused to wear nice things or ripped off the stickers on your car or traded in your cool truck for something else? No. Thanks be to Christ who has saved me from this body of death and is slowly and patiently reordering my heart and my mind to follow him and to walk in his ways. So whether you have a little or a lot and whatever that means because it changes from person to person. Your value, your worth, your identity is not in what you own. No, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be the kind of people like Paul who can say, whether in plenty or not, we have everything because we have you. Lord, I pray for this because this is hard. We do not live in a war zone. We don't live where there is persistent famine because of civil disobedience or corruption. We live in a place that is wealthy, even among the poorest among us. So Lord, we pray for our hearts and our minds that we would not see that we are what we own, that this thing is me, but rather we would see we belong to you because that's what you say. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.